Hello and welcome to Love Thy Lawyer, where we talk to real lawyers about their lives in and out of the practice of law, how they got to be lawyers, and what their experience has been. I'm Lewis Goodman, the host of the show, and yes, I'm a lawyer. Nobody's perfect. Today we welcome David Lim. He's a former Alameda County Deputy District Attorney. He's the former mayor of the city of San Mateo, and he's been an educator. Please help me welcome David Lim. Mayor David Lim, welcome to Love Thy Lawyer. Thank you so much for being here, and I'm very honored that you're talking to me today. Hi, Lewis. It's good to be here. Glad to be on your podcast. Thanks for inviting me. What was it like being mayor of a city in the Bay Area? It was a lot of fun. You know, I ran for the city council of San Mateo in uh, 2009. I won uh, and I served two terms, so a total of eight years. And in San Mateo, we rotate the mayorship position. So I was selected by my colleagues to be mayor in 2013 and again in 2017. And I had a wonderful time doing it. What made you decide to get into city politics to begin with? You know, I started when I was still working for the Alameda County District Attorney's Office. And in San Mateo, like many smaller cities in California, city council is a part-time position. So I had gotten involved in my community, serving on a city commission. I was on the neighborhood watch board uh, for the city of San Mateo. And when one of my city council members, who I adored, uh, decided to retire and left a spot open, it just sort of was a natural progression for me to decide to run for city council. And my boss at the time, Tom Orloff, gave me his blessing to you know, do this part-time gig. And I ran and I had, a, I had a lovely time doing it. But it really was just a sense of community involvement that made me seek out the city council seat. Where are you from originally, David? So I grew up in Montebello, California, which is a small suburban town in Los Angeles County, kind of near East L.A., and I was born and raised in the same house for 17 years until I left for college. And what high school did you go to? So I went to a very, the, the name of the high school is very strange. It's called Sure High School, uh, like, you know, for sure. But it's spelled S-C-H-U-R-R. It's named after George Miller Schur, who was a uh, administrator in the Montebello Unified School District. And I don't know what he did to get a school named after him, but he did something. And uh, so he's got a school named after him. No one else has ever heard of this man. And after you graduated from Shure, where did you go to college? So I went to UCLA for undergrad, uh, got my bachelor's degree in political science. And then I did another year to get a master's degree in education also at UCLA. Did you teach for a while? I did. So my first career was not the law. Um, I was a school teacher in Los Angeles public schools. I taught for about three years. Um, I taught uh, middle school history. I actually taught two years of middle school, and then I did a year as an adjunct professor at UCLA, um, helping to teach in their teacher ed program. So a total of three years in education. What made you start thinking about going to law school? So I had actually gotten into a PhD program at UCLA. After my um, second year of teaching, they said, um, UCLA approached me, my old professor, and said, we really like what you do. We'd like you to come full-time to the faculty at UCLA, but you need to have a doctorate degree. So I got into a, a, a doctorate program at UCLA. I was going at night while I was teaching, and it almost just about killed me. I was 23 at the time. I was young. 
I was teaching all day, then going to classes all night. I had no social life. And I literally looked in the mirror about two months into the program and thought, is this really what I want to do with my life? And I love teaching. I love being in the classroom, but I, but it was just too much. And I thought, you know what? I always wanted to go to law school. I still have that desire to go to law school. If I don't go now, I probably won't go because after about five years in teaching or anywhere in a job, you might kind of get settled in. So I said, I'm going to go to law school. And so I quit the teaching job. I dropped out of the PhD program. I packed up my truck, moved to the East Coast for a year, worked on Capitol Hill while I took the LSATs and got my applications in, literally just sort of caroused and worked and had a good time in D.C. until it was ready to come back, uh, time to come back and go to law school. Who did you work for in D.C.? So I worked for the late uh, Congressman Robert Matsui. He was a Democratic congressman out of Sacramento. Great man. Great mentor. He actually went to the same law school I went to, Hastings Law School. So when I was applying, he gave me a lot of good advice about, you know, which law schools to apply to, what he did with the practice of law. Um, but, yeah, he passed away in the early 2000s, but he was a great guy to work for. He was a real mentor to you. He was a mentor, yeah. He was a nice guy. When you went back to uh, Washington, did that sort of pique your interest in politics as well? You know, I'd always sort of been interested in politics, but that, yeah, it really did give me the first taste of how to do politics effectively. You know, I went there without a job and I basically walked the halls of Congress, banging on doors, dropping off my resume. And then you went to law school. And I came back to law school. Yeah, I came back to came back to California, uh, moved to the San Francisco Bay Area. I chose San Francisco because it reminded me the most of an East Coast city. And I had so much fun in D.C. I didn't I wasn't ready to go back to Los Angeles. So uh, Hastings was a good school. They accepted me. And, you know, so here I am. What was your experience in law school? How did you like Hastings? I did not like Hastings at all, to be honest with you. I thought, um, you know, after my time as a teacher and then um, working in D.C., going back into graduate school and being told what to think and when to do things was a little little hard. So um, I, you know, bucked the system a lot. I would ask a lot of questions that really had nothing to do with anything about the study of law and were more kind of policy, social justice issues. I was not intimidated by my professors, you know, when they tried that whole Socratic method. If I, you know, did the reading and didn't understand it and they asked me a question, I would say, I, had, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I think over time they grew to respect me because they realized, oh, wait, this guy, you know, he's in his mid-20s. He's not, you know, some newbie out of uh, undergrad. He's got some world experience. And so I actually ended up becoming friends with a lot of my professors. But the beginning was rough. I didn't like the competitive nature of, you know, everyone worrying about their grades so much. I really thought you should be learning about justice and, you know, what it meant to, to be a good moral lawyer. But, um, yeah, Hastings was very, very cutthroat. When you got out of law school, what was your first legal job? So I've only had three legal jobs. The first one that I did for almost 20 years was as a prosecutor for the Alameda County District Attorney's Office. Um, I did a short break about 13 years in. I moved over to the Santa Clara County DA's office, which is a whole, we, we could do a whole podcast just on the politics of moving district attorney's offices. It didn't take. So after 18 months there, I moved back to Alameda. I logged another, oh, probably six, seven years in Alameda. And then I retired last year in 2019, uh, opened my own private practice did that for a year. And now I'm at a firm called Richards, Watson and Gershon, which does public law um, representation. When you were in the district attorney's office, um, can you 
tell us about uh, any notable experience that you had there, whether it was a specific case or or just some experience uh, having been there? Yeah. Well, you, Lewis, you, you and I were in the trenches together. Um, I know that the listeners That's, of our podcast we were we... don't know that, but you and I have been friends for a long time. You were always one of the good guys, but you were a defense attorney who fought hard for his clients. And, you know, you and I could probably sit for three hours and tell stories of funny things that happened to us and to our clients, both victims and, and defendants. But I will tell you, I have two I have a number of good stories. I have nothing but really good memories of being a, a district attorney for Alameda County. The very first. Yeah, me too, by the way. Yeah. You know, I was in the well, DA's that's right. office that's right. uh, years ago, that. and, and uh, it was a great place to yeah. work. Really great place to yeah. work. It was. It was. It's the two stories that stick out the most. If I had to pick, you know, one or two. So the first one was, you know, I'm a brand new DA, and I worked at the old Berkeley. Berkeley Municipal Court. It's not there anymore. This is yeah. before they consolidated all the courts into superior courts. And um, so I had a Berkeley Municipal Court. I was doing the misdemeanor calendar and jury trials in Berkeley, which is, you know, kind of like if you're a prosecutor, it's probably the most unfriendly venue to be dropped in as a new district attorney because it's very liberal. And um, they are very, you know, even back in uh, 1999, when I started Black Lives Matter had not even come onto the scene yet, but there was a very high uh, suspicion on any government prosecution agency. And my very first case, literally the first week I had, you know, I hadn't even, you know, sat down and warmed up my seat yet. I get handed a case to take out to trial. It's a case involving uh, the, the old Albany bulb, the uh, park and rec area out yep. there. They Every probably 10 years, Albany gets a be up their butt and they say, okay, we want to clear all the homeless people out because we want to develop it into housing or a park or whatever they want to do. So back then they were in one of their, their moods and they wanted to um, clear out the bulb. So they did. There was a man there named Michael Smith, who was this eccentric, you know, homeless guy. And he had, he was an artist and he built this wonderful Native American teepee painted and they basically bulldozed it and they forced him out. And they charged him with trespass and it was a political case because they needed to make an example of someone and they decided to pick on poor Mr. Smith. And so I get this case for jury trial and I'm looking at it going, this is not why I became a district attorney. I did not become a district attorney to pick on, you know, uh, homeless guys who just want to live somewhere and have this beautiful TV that the city bulldozes down. It seemed crazy to me, but you know, I was brand new and I needed the money. And um, my boss explained to me that, you know, sometimes you get marching orders and you got to follow them. And, you know, he was in violation of the law. So I screwed up my courage. I had no idea how to pick a jury. I had no idea how to make eliminate motions. I just went in there. Um, I literally got my butt handed to me. There was, I think it was like a 20 minute acquittal where people said, how can the city do this to this poor man? And so I fulfilled my constitutional obligations as a prosecutor. Luckily, things got better. I started handling, you know, real cases after that where people had committed real crimes. But I'll never forget that one because he was a really nice man. He would talk to me while we were on breaks. And he at one point said, oh, I know you're just doing your job. Um, you know, no harm, no, no hard feelings. And he was so nice. And he, he really made it better for me to feel like, you know, he was going to be OK. So I felt OK. And, you know, you and I know it was a misdemeanor trespass. Even if he had been convicted, he wasn't going to do any time. 
Um, it was more just a political statement. So that was kind of an eye-opening, kind of fun first experience, a very low-stress jury trial. You were going to tell one more story. So yeah, the other story was a little more serious, but again, it's fun. It's it's sort of the gallows humor that Lewis, you and I have, right, as being in criminal law. If you practice it for any amount of time, you take it seriously, but you also kind of have to laugh at some of the weirdness that goes on, otherwise you'll go crazy. So this was a case, it was a very serious case. It was a um, attempted murder, assault with a, a, an assault rifle. A young man basically decides he's gonna kill his rival. He walks up on a van that he thinks contains his rivals, starts shooting an, a, a Mac 11 or some sort of semi-automatic weapon at the van and just lights up the van, just peppering it right with bullets. Uh, such a bad shot. He hits the van, luckily doesn't kill anybody, thank God. But it also turns out that the van is full of people he knows, his friends. His rival was not in the van. It was just like six people who he all knew. One of them jumps out of the van and starts screaming, Mookie, Mookie, it's me. Don't shoot, don't shoot. And he gets hit in the ankle for his troubles. So that's the worst injury, thank goodness. But during the trial, um, we basically call all six witnesses. And because all six witnesses are friends of the defendant, they were reluctant witnesses, uh, uncooperative witnesses, I think you and I used to call them. And um, the defendant, for some odd reason, decides that instead of just sort of appealing to the friendship of his friends to tell them, you know, to not cooperate with the prosecutor, he decides to go strong arm tactic. So he has three guys come into court every day and sit in the um, audience and basically glare at the witnesses as they're coming in and glare at them on their, while they're on the stand. And this has the effect of them all not suddenly not remembering what happened. Um, but I'm able to impeach each of them with their statements. And so it goes very well for me because the jury's watching these, you know, thugs in the audience, mean mug my witnesses, and they can put two and two together. And it was a very quick trial. And I remember the defense attorney yelling at his guy saying, you got to get these guys out of here. You know, they're ruining the case. You're going to, you're going to get convicted so fast. And of course, nobody listened. So the funny part of the story is they've done this to, you know, three or four of my witnesses. I got two or three more left to go. We're coming back from a lunch break. I come into the hallway of the old Renee C. Davidson courthouse, which is you and I know you come up the elevator and you come into an, a hallway and you're kind of locked on the floor and the courtroom doors are on either side of the hallway. Well, the courtroom doors were locked because we were coming back from lunch and I was a little early and I wanted to sit out there and, you know, go over my notes for the afternoon session. And the witnesses are downstairs in, a, in our office with our inspectors so that, you know, they're kind of being kept safe because of these guys walking around and we didn't, you know, want, want some sort of altercation to, to pop off. So I'm sitting there alone in this hallway. The courtroom doors are locked. There's nowhere to go. I'm sitting on a bench. The, the elevator door opens and two of the guys come in, two of the thugs come in and they see me and they come over and they sit right next to me on either side of me clearly in an, in an effort to intimidate me. And they're just sitting there and I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to do? I'm, you know, I'm alone. My police officer inspector is downstairs. If these guys suddenly decide to wail on me, there's not a darn thing I can do about it. If I scream, I don't think anyone's going to hear me. But then I think they're not dumb enough to attack a prosecutor in a courtroom, are they? But you and I, Lewis, know that we've seen everything happen. It could yeah, be. It could be, right? <laughs> they they yeah. didn't, you know, they're not the smartest bananas of the bunch if they're there trying to intimidate witnesses. So I'm literally there sitting there with them for about 30 seconds. And finally, I decide, you know what? I'm just going to, I got to play tough. I got to play tough. If I don't, who knows what can happen? So I turned to them and I said, um, and I'm very polite. And I don't yell at them, but I said, gentlemen, um, can I help you? I said, um, because you know that I'm the district attorney 
And um, is there anything that I can, any questions I can answer for, you, answer for you, anything at all that I can help you with? And I just wanted to let them know that I wasn't scared of them. I was trying to just act confident. And it's hilarious because they kind of look at me for a second and then they go, oh my God, we're so sorry. We thought you were the next witness. We did not know you. We, did, we forgot you were the district attorney. It's our bad. We would never, they're like, we, we don't mean, we would never try to do anything to the district attorney, man. Do you, we're so sorry. Is it all good? And I'm looking at them like, first of all, relieved that I'm not about to get beat up. But two, being like, you guys got to be the dumbest people I've ever met. Like, I, we've been in trial now for a week. And, and you've seen me ask, asking these people questions. But maybe they were so fixated on glaring at the witnesses, they never took notice of me, which is the only thing I can think of. But the funniest part was they became so nice. They were like, oh, we're so sorry. Oh, you know, we didn't mean it. Oh, and they left. They got in the elevator and they left. And I thought, in their minds, intimidating a witness is okay, but intimidating a DA is not. Like, that's a weird... That's a weird line to have, right? A weird line not to cross. You figure if you're going to intimidate a witness, what, what, what does it matter to intimidate a DA? But I thought it was hilarious because after that, they were kind of nice to me. Like they'd see me and they'd sort of wave, kind of smile, and then go back to intimidating witnesses. It was the most bizarre thing I'd ever seen. Um, yeah, well, everybody's got their job. You know, the yeah. judge has got a job. Yeah. You've got a job. The yeah. attorney's got a job. Yeah. That's their yeah, job. Their job is to intimidate witnesses. You left the district attorney's office and went into practice for yourself. Yes. For a year or two. Um, and what sort of practice did you have at that time? So I left the DA's office, took my pension. Um, I'm 50 and I, I had one of those old timey pensions. That's really good. So when I turned 50, I'm like, I'm going to take that good old timey pension and, uh, opened my own practice focused mostly on criminal defense work. I would say about 80% criminal defense. And then I was trying to build up a land use civil practice from my time as a city uh, a city council member, because I really enjoyed uh, local municipal law. I enjoyed watching our city attorney work, and I thought, I want to do that. That's kind of fun. How did it feel going from the district attorney's office over to the criminal defense side? You know, it wasn't as hard a transition as people would think. I think people always think that for a prosecutor, the hardest part is um, interacting with your client who is now the defendant. And I never really thought that was an issue. Even as a prosecutor, I was probably one of the more liberal prosecutors you'd ever meet. I mean, you heard my story of Michael Smith, the homeless teepee guy and, and sort of the sympathies I had right. for him. Um, to me, there was always a thin line between a person who was a defendant and a person who was your victim. A lot of times it, it boiled down to who drew their gun first. Were most of your cases in San Mateo County after you left? Um, I would say, yeah, the large portion were in San Mateo County. I did a few with um, our good friend, Jack Noonan. He's a very prominent, well-respected defense attorney in Alameda County. Nice guy. He had some cases he needed help with. So I worked with Jack on a few cases. But, you know, it's hard driving from San Mateo to um, uh, Dublin. It's, it's a long drive. Well, it used to be in the before times. Yeah. Yeah, in the before times. Now you just go on the blue jeans and you appear and your microphone doesn't work and that's a whole nother set of problems. You brought something up and I, I'm wondering if your experience is what mine has been, which is people tend, I think, to get in trouble with the law mainly because they're either drinking or using drugs or both. <clears throat> I would say that's absolutely fair, you know, or they just have bad decision-making processes. 
You know, you, you go through the minds and you talk to your client and you've done this a hundred times more than I have thousands of times more than I have. But I agree with you that the, the trigger factor for most crimes is some sort of substance abuse, you know, but I think socioeconomic status plays a large role in it that, um, you know, if you are financially insecure, if you're housing insecure, it leads to a lot of stress which can lead to poor decisions because of the stress that you feel that you need to provide for your family and you make decisions which end up not, you know, being the best choice. Well, do you, do you think that the, that the legal system uh, is fair or dispenses justice or do you think it's unfair and doesn't dispense justice? See, I'm used to talking for those who don't know. I mean, this is the secret that we can release to your listening audience that prosecutors and defense attorneys, at least the good ones on both sides, we get along, right? Don't, would you agree? Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, we oh, fight. like if you had a client, if I was still a prosecutor and you were the defense attorney and you had a client that you absolutely believed was innocent, you would do everything in your power to acquit him. You would come at me with every tool in your legal arsenal. But at the end of the day, we would go get lunch. We might hang out. We might even see each other in Tahoe skiing and, and talk and, you know, hang out with our families that's a secret that I think people who watch Law and Order don't understand is that, um, you know, it's important in the system for the system to work for there to be good relationships between prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges, court staff. And so to answer your question that I am not avoiding your question, that that's my point is I think that our system, our American judicial system is the best system in the world, hands down for dispensing justice. But like every other construct, it is a human-made construct. And so it is still susceptible to the prejudices and foibles of our very humanistic nature and character. If someone was uh, just starting out in their career, someone was in college and asked you about going to law school, would you recommend the law as a career for a young person? Yeah, that's a loaded question. Because on the one hand, I've had a great career. I have had no complaints. It's paid for my house. It's allowed me to have a very privileged lifestyle with my family. And we are never wanting for anything. You know, I would say it's not for everybody. You know, I think you have to go in with a clear mind of what it is that you want to do. I think the advice I give to people, in fact, I gave this advice to my niece because she's starting law school uh, this fall. And the advice I give young people is, you know, law is a wonderful career. It teaches you wonderful skills in terms of analytics, in terms of thinking and negotiating and parsing down issues. But you shouldn't do it just because you want to make a lot of money. Because I think if you go into law thinking, oh, I want to make a lot of money, you're going to be miserable. You're going to go to the highest paying job that you can find, which is probably going to be some firm. But if you're not passionate about it, you're quickly going to become disenchanted. What one thing would you like to change if you had the power to do it? Wow, that's a great question. So in terms of societal health, I think the one thing I could change would I would improve our education system. David Lim, thank you very much for joining me today on Love Thy Lawyer. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And even though we've known each other for quite a while, I certainly learned some things about you today that I didn't know before. So thank you very much for so open about things with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure being on your podcast, Lewis. I wish you the best of luck, and uh, it's nice to hear from you. Always good to talk to you. Thanks for joining us today on Love Thy Lawyer. Special thanks always to my guests, Joel Katz for music, Brian Matheson for technical support, and Tracy Harvey. 
please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Lewis Goodman. That's a loaded question, Lewis. You promised me we were going to have fun yeah. and laugh. I it's, love on yeah. it's on the outline. It's on the outline.